So hey, what happened over at Hasselblad? I, I think they have a new boss. A new boss. Well, they have a new chief of strategy, whatever that means. That sounds a lot like boss to me. Yeah, it does sound a little like boss, doesn't it? <laughs> um, so as we're recording, this news has just recently broke. Um, Ming Thien, who is a fairly well-known um, blogger and, and gear reviewer, um, I guess most famously known for his really, really in-depth um, analysis when he does camera reviews. Right. Um, he's recently, um, I think like as of last year or something like that, he became a sponsored Hasselblad photographer of, of some denomination. Um, but apparently now he has also been hired full-time as their quote-unquote chief of strategy. Um, and that's kind of cool because I think that um, if nothing else, it it bodes well for Hasselblad as a company. I, I, I almost feel like they were very disconnected for a while there from their audience of right. photographers and what photographers actually want from uh, their equipment. So having someone like Ming on board is is good news for everyone, I think. And he seems excited. So yeah, what, what do you make of it? Well, first of all, I think what a way to climb up the corporate ladder, right? Yeah, going from random sponsored person to, to chief in a year is not bad. Yeah, I suspect he's not going to enjoy the new job as much because it, it sounds a lot more, uh, you know, businessy and less creative. Right. Maybe I'm wrong because yeah. after all, I, I love technology and, and you do too. So for us, I think it would be incredibly interesting to be involved, you know, in the development plans, the product roadmap and everything. Yeah. But if he's more of a creative type, he might be a little put off by the technical nature of it. I don't know. Yeah. He might find it a little dry. I mean, if he took the job, it's probably because he's fine with it. So I'm sure it's going to be okay. I read a comment somewhere that his background is in this kind of thing so it might not be as far from his wheelhouse as as it seems oh great but either way you know i'm i, I look forward to what his perspective is going to bring to the company because what, one of the neat things about him is that he's very opinionated like he's not <laughs> he doesn't pull any punches when he's sharing an opinion and um he he's been uh very free with criticism um regarding the the cameras and the manufacturers that he's worked with before and i think that that kind of attitude is valuable for Hasselblad right now because he really needs to just uh get their focus on where it needs to be right um and given their their recent acquisitions with uh, with the the whole drone thing earlier in the year um the, i think they have a good healthy position as far as um, where they are right now, but um, this this kind of strategy is, is hopefully going to help them become uh, or uh, remain a big player going forward because right now I think the camera industry is under a lot of scrutiny and is being threatened from various different sides and there's only, there's only a handful of companies that I think are really excelling right. and thriving, so hopefully this, this will mean that Hasselblad is one of them. Yeah, it definitely feels like they need a change of pace like a, a fresh outlook on their business. And the the new mirrorless camera that they announced is sort of a step in the right direction. And yeah. like they seem more open-minded and willing to try new things. Yeah, for sure. Instead of just releasing the same camera over and over again, which is what they've done for the better part of, I don't know, forever. <laughs> yeah. It's always felt like a company that's up there in their ivory tower and they're not, they just don't care about what people want. They, they, they know better, right? Yeah. That's a good way of looking at it. Yeah. Yeah. This strikes me as a, an admission of guilt in a way, like they are, they know that they need to reconnect with the photography community, uh, at a, at a more creative level. And the fact that they're aware of that need, I think bodes well for the company. Yeah. And willing to act on it too, because this is, uh, yeah, this is a big move even for them. It's, it's not, you know, it's, 
it incurs a bit of risk. They're going to have to listen to him now that they've hired him. Yeah. You know, they're going to have to take his opinions into consideration. So it's uh, it's good news for everyone. I, I look forward to it. I'm only a little sad because it, I think it's going to mean inevitably that he can't really do very many camera reviews anymore, other than obviously the Hasselblad ones. Which is not a bad, it's not a bad situation to be in. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, for, for him, it's terrific. But I just mean as a, you know, as someone in the photography community, I always looked forward to his impressions of a camera because I, yeah. again, he he's very opinionated and he's very, uh, he scrutinizes them in a way that I think very few other reviewers are equipped to do, um, specifically because he's got so much experience in, uh, extracting the maximum amount of image quality from a given sensor and lens combination, and you know his whole ultra print thing that that has been going on for a few years now. He's yeah. he just comes at the review process from a different perspective, and it'll be sad to lose that. But you know, again, it's it, it is what it is, and I'm happy for him. He seems like uh, he deserves this, and uh, I, I look forward to what it does for Hasselblad going forward. Yeah, me too. Me too. It's going to be interesting. You know, knowing that there's a photographer high up in the food chain dictating product. Just somewhere in there, yeah. <laughs> That's very refreshing because that type of of job is usually held by more businessy or more engineering uh, profiles. Right, yeah. Uh, so it's going to be interesting to see how much of an impact it has on, on the company and if it's something that people end up noticing. Yeah, because we might not see any any results for quite a while. I mean, it's not like he's going to show up today and all of a sudden they're going to announce new stuff. So it's, but you know, it's the first step. It's good. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I'm looking forward to seeing what he does. Let's, let's root for him <laughs> and wish him the best. Absolutely. Now, you also had an interesting bit of news this week. Um, one of the reviews that I've been looking forward to from you for quite a while now, you've been teasing us with photos and stuff on Instagram, <laughs> is finally published. Uh, it's the 35. So tell us about it. Well, this is a this is a personal one for me because, uh, I mean, you know it. I've been after this lens for a while. Yes, uh, yeah. Pretty much ever since it was first announced and then released, and then I started reading all the reviews. So it's been exciting. When over the summer, I finally decided it was time to buy it, and I'd always wanted a fast thirty-five millimeter prime. Before I was aware uh, of this lens, before it was announced, the one that I had on my sights was the Sigma Art Prime, which is a fantastic lens that's, you know, everybody loves because it's just phenomenal from an image quality point of view, but it's also very affordable. Right, yeah. This one, on the other hand, is just as good or better than the Sigma, but it's also twice the price. Right, yeah. So it's not easy. It took me a while to finally, you know, bite the bullet and admit to myself that it was okay to buy it. And I gotta say, it it, it was tough making the call, but now that I've done it and now that I've shot with the lens... I just, I don't regret it at all. Like, it's one of the best purchases I've ever made. Yeah, and I I feel like for you, this was the, uh, this was kind of the Moby Dick thing where you, you've been hunting it for a while now and it, yeah. realistically, you've always said that 35 mil is is sort of your, your home yeah. zone. So it makes sense that if you're going to invest heavily in your gear anywhere, it's going to be in um, getting access to to the best of the best when it comes to this focal length. And from from what I'm reading here in the review, it sounds like this is pretty much up there with the very best 35s it for is. any system. It really is. Yeah. And you know how it is when you want to review something, you first get it and you're all excited and you're pretty much in the honeymoon phase, right? Yeah. yeah. So I was very tempted to just write a hot take on it, like get my words out there because I was so excited to finally have it and, and to, I don't know, spend four or five days shooting with it, like 
eight hours a day and then rushing to judgment. And that's that's not really what I wanted to do for this one. I mean, it would have been great. It would have been, you know, lots of fun <laughs> yeah. to do. But at the end of the day, I, I, I knew I wanted to put in the effort to actually use it over a longer period of time to sort of let my feelings cool down a bit and gain some perspective. When you're steering people to buy something that's pretty expensive, I mean, you have a responsibility towards them. I don't want to mislead anyone. Yeah. And the fact that I'm enthusiastic about it doesn't necessarily mean that others will be, you know. But more than anything, I wanted to just write a good review. And I feel in my previous experience, the longer you wait to review something, the better the end result usually is. Yeah. So that was a big part of it too. Yeah, we do have a habit of waiting for a while with our <laughs> with our reviews. That's that's kind of a thing. But I, I do think it it's it allows us to do justice to the product in a way that a hot take just can't, because now you've had an opportunity to actually use the lens in a variety of situations. Yeah. And you've kind of seen how the combination of IQ and size and uh, you know ergonomics and things like that actually play out in the long term. And that I think is where, especially like you said, for something of this value of some something that is this expensive all these little details matter and it's the kind of thing that you buy with the view of keeping for a long time right so that's the kind of impression that i would think is more useful to people um which you know that's that's why i think this review is going to sell a bunch of copies frankly <laughs> hopefully hopefully i'd be very happy if that was the case or even if it it, it just uh, allowed people to gain a better understanding of what the lens can do for them yeah and what it can't do. So that's just just as important. Maybe maybe after reading the review, they realize it's not the lens for them, and that's okay too. Yeah, of course. Uh, yeah. Like I said, I just don't want to mislead anyone. In my case, I sort of went through a bit of a roller coaster because at the beginning, I was super excited about it. I didn't even feel the weight because I just wanted to shoot with it. Right. Then after a while, I started thinking, well, you know what? It is pretty big. I'm not sure if I want to take it with me every day. Yeah. And then once I finally started getting good images out of it, it's like the weight suddenly came to a second plane of relevance, you know? Right, like, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's a big lens. I'm aware of it. But I know that it's worth carrying with me. Like, like I said in the review, if there's even the slightest chance that I'm going to be able to take a, a nice picture of something that's important to me, then I just don't care about the weight. I'm, I'm taking it with me and that's the end of it. Yeah. And this is the kind of lens where it, it might be the only one that goes with you, in which case, yes, it's, it's one heavy lens, but it's not like it's weighing you down because you have a kit of other stuff. So right. uh, the, the system overall still is a manageable size. But yeah, it is it is larger than than I anticipated, frankly. Like I, I saw that first picture and I was like, holy crap, this is this is way bigger than I don't know why. Like in my head I just have this this vision of 35 mil equivalent lenses being a little more compact. But it's right. probably because I've been, you know, the most recent one I was shooting with was the, you know, the Fujifilm um, XF23 F2, which is basically a little peanut compared to this. Mm. Um, yeah, 35 mil lenses are usually fairly compact, except the F1.4 ones. Those are massive. Yeah. Like for every manufacturer, those are really, really big. Except for Leica. That's where this one is really shining, is the uh, the, the ability to throw things out of focus, even with that wider yeah. um, field of view. And it's interesting because, of course, there's no distortion, and that's why there's so many elements in there that it allows for a very interesting look that I don't think you can get with cheaper glass, which uh, which is cool. Yeah, I think it's the combination, like you said, of having a perspective that you associate with really deep depth of field, but at the same time having that shallow depth of field. With like Both things together 
is a very special yeah. combination. And it's a bit like what you get with uh, medium format. Because medium format wide lenses, they are still able to get that shallow depth of field for the most part. Right. So it's a, it's a little bit the same feeling that I get when I look at the images out of the camera. Yeah. I, one of the things that stands out to me with the Zeiss lenses in general is that they have, um, and, and it's I think it's deliberate because it's just part of their, their character as a brand, but um, typically the images seem to have a little bit more contrast, uh, specifically that, that micro contrast that gives that, that pop that normally you have to do some post-processing to get, but yeah. there's just a clarity to the images that, um, that it's just, it just happens right out of the camera, which is amazing. Yeah, and I don't know if that's true for all of size lenses, but it definitely has the reputation for it. Yeah. In this particular case, I do believe there's, there's a lot of that character in the lens. Uh, but what makes them special in, in my experience is that they try to make the transition from in focus to out of focus. They make it very abrupt. So that's why you can get even more subject isolation that you perhaps would get with a lens that is the same focal length, the same speed, right. but from a different manufacturer. Because they try to push the, the switch from in-focus to out-of-focus to make it more abrupt. And th that way you can get the, the subject to pop even, even with slower lenses or wider lenses. Something interesting stood out to me just looking at a few of the um, shots from the review that were more or less wide open. I'm obviously I'm not sure exactly what the f-stop was, but for instance, the bicycle that's leaned up against the tree versus some of the close-ups of the uh, the floor grates in the city, wherever that was. Um, one of the things that that caught my eye was just how different the bouquet looks in both of those images. Because to to my eye, when I look at the the bicycle. Um, there is a lot of that very clear separation, like you said, between the bicycle and the background, and it's very cool from that distance. But the background bokeh looks somewhat nervous, um, uh -huh. whereas on the other photos where you're closer to the subject and you've you know you've thrown out the background, it's much smoother. It's much more um, pleasing. So it's just interesting how the same lens can produce different characters of out of focus rendering depending on how you use it. Yeah, it, the distance from the camera to the subject is pretty much what determines the amount of blurriness that you get in the in the background. So in the case of the bicycle picture, I'm standing at a good one and a half meters away from it or so right. uh, in order to get more of the scene behind it in the in the frame. Uh, and that has the effect that, yeah, the, the bokeh looks a little bit more nervous, you know, the, the branches of the trees behind it and everything. But if you get closer, yeah, everything just fades away. Yeah, it's interesting. But I mean, it's not a bad thing. It's just a, a part of its character, I suppose. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, this, this, uh, this review has certainly been interesting to look at because it's also I feel like an opportunity for you to show off more of your street photography than we typically see in other reviews <laughs> um, just given the nature of this focal length it's kind of a you know it's a shoe in for this sort of photography yeah it's 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 a tricky lens to shoot in the street with I mean most of the pictures in the review are actually what I would call landscape images right urban landscapes if you will when I think of the street photography it's more more the human element and not so much the the buildings and the and yeah there are a few pictures of people in the review and some very interesting characters that I got to meet when I was out there shooting right 
But yeah, the majority of the shots is uh, what I would call more landscape photography. That's the bulk of the shooting that I've done with the lens. But it's because it's, it's, it's a, like I said, it's a trick lens to shoot in the street with because it's just so big that there's just no way that you're going to be inconspicuous with it. Yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, not with that one. <laughs> <laughs> and I did have, a, I mentioned it in the review, I did have a, a close encounter once <laughs> with a... Uh, with a person that wasn't too happy because he thought I, w- I had taken his, pic- his picture, and luckily I hadn't, so uh, nothing right. nothing bad happened uh, from there. But uh, but yeah, it it made me a little bit concerned that maybe I, it wasn't as safe as I as I usually feel when I'm in the street shooting. Uh, but that was an isolated incident. It's never happened again. And I, I've continued to shoot with the lens on the street. So maybe it's just all in my head. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot there that, that I, I, I want to keep pulling on that thread a little bit. But before we depart from the review, I just, uh, was there more that you wanted to kind of talk about? Are you pleased with the purchase ultimately now that you've spent more time with it? Are you uh, How are you feeling about the lens now? I'm definitely happy that I bought the lens. I'm not regretting it for for a second. And Right, good. Yeah, I, I would encourage anyone to to give it a test. I mean, even if it's just you rent it for a weekend and just see how it goes. Uh, but if you're after a 35mm lens, this is as good as it gets for the Sony system. Like, just that's just it. There's, <laughs> There's nothing, yeah. I, I don't know what else to say. I mean, that, that, that that's just it. If none of the characteristics of the lens are a deal breaker for you, like like the big size, the heavy weight, well, it's not too heavy, but... It is quite a bit hefty. Uh, and the price, of course, if any of those are deal breakers to you, then you're going to have to look elsewhere because this lens is what it is. But if you're okay with those, you can't buy a better 35mm lens today. That's pretty much it. There you go, Team Sony. This is the one to get. But let's unpack this street photography thing. This is this is our, our sort of target topic for the week. And we've been circling it for a while because it's. Um, I think you've got the most experience shooting street photography and for the rest of us I'm I mean I'm firmly in the camp where that nervousness that you were speaking about just now uh is is firmly entrenched I I find it a very difficult genre to approach and often to appreciate as well right Um, so we can we can dig into a bit of that but maybe just as we get started what do you actually consider street photography because you just made the distinction between like street photography and like urban yeah. landscape stuff yeah. so where do you draw that line like where what are we talking about here to me it's very simple street photography is about people it's about capturing the human element uh, and and capturing spontaneous non-posed scenes from everyday life right so for me at least it it has to include the human element in some form and it has to be candid. It has to be spontaneous. Otherwise, I would just call it a street portrait or whatever. It's not street photography. Okay, so then does the urban element fit in as a requirement for you? Like, uh, it doesn't necessarily have to be in a city, but for instance, if it's in a small town or like, what does it need to be in location-wise to to characterize? Because I almost feel like then the definition is so broad that we're just talking about candid photos regardless of location. So is there a distinction between just a candid shot and a street photograph or is it just a flavor? That's a very good question. I, I think there probably is. Yeah, there probably is. I mean, it's a way to narrow the the genre and that's what people want. Yeah. So yeah, if, if we're trying to define a narrow category for street photography to exist in, I would say, yeah, there it has to be an urban uh, scenario. Right. Not that I care about that 
particularly because that's not what I find appealing about that type of image. It's about the people, like I said. Right. Okay. No, that makes sense. I, I just wanted to kind of understand where you drew those lines because we need to have a working definition. And of course, it doesn't really matter. Like it's, I think it's more important for other people in history to worry about categorizing our images. If we're satisfied with them, then, you know, who really cares? But yeah. for the purposes of this discussion, it's just good to know where the boundaries lie. <laughs> so I like that definition of basically being something in an urban environment that's candid, but that specifically is focused on the human element right. of the scene. And, and, and I want to make another distinction. Candid doesn't necessarily mean that you don't interact with your subjects. Right. Because that's a, a bit of a misunderstanding uh, that I see a lot out there. Many people think that the only kind of street photography that counts is when you are super stealthy and take pictures and your subjects don't even notice you're there, like you're a fly on the wall. Yeah. And that that certainly is a type of street photography, but interacting with your subjects, to me, not only is allowed, it's actually encouraged because it adds a very special element to the image. There's a difference between talking with a person on the street and taking their picture you know, in a in a relaxed, spontaneous way, and just asking and saying, "Would you mind staying over there? I'm going to take a portrait of you." That's different. That once you start with the posing, then you're kind of crossing over the line. But if you're just talking to a person and snapping away, I, I think that counts. And to me, the most interesting images that I've gotten in the past are those where my subject is actually looking into the lens. You know, when, when you capture someone's attention, yeah. there's that split second when they where they raise their gaze and look at you, and there's a split second before they actually react to what they're seeing. Right, yeah. And that, that split second, that's where the magic is. Yeah, that makes sense, because then they're, they're basically still holding on to whatever previous thought was in their mind before exactly. they've registered that you are there, that you're taking a photograph, and that they have opinions about the situation. Yeah, no, that makes sense. The pictures that I see that are like that, I always wonder, what happened after that picture was taken. Yeah. And the images that make you think like that, that, those are the images that I tend to like the most. There's some where the the person has clearly reacted to the photographer already and they look really upset. And sometimes I worry about what happened immediately after that photograph. Yeah. It's like, oh, they, they don't look very happy. Sometimes they aren't. Sometimes they are. That's okay. Yeah. One of our listeners, Alex, has uh, a question for us that kind of leads us into the next thing. Um, he wants to know how you get over introversion. As someone who's trying to approach street photography, I mean, you were just telling me about this parallel technique of, you know, there's the silent fly on the wall approach, but then there's the approach where you're actually interacting and you're willing to be noticed and you're willing to be a part of that that scene. Right. And for someone like him and like me, as introverts, that's really daunting. Like it's a very it's a very difficult bridge to cross from I'm taking a photograph of a complete stranger in an environment that's maybe unfamiliar because maybe I'm traveling um, or, you know, whatever the case may be, there's just that that initial hurdle of making contact. Did you ever face that? Like, is there something that you can offer by way of advice for, for those of us who haven't made the leap? I think what scares people the most about that type of situation is the not knowing what to do when that happens. Right, yep. But if you're prepared, then the fear kind of goes away a little bit. If you have a story prepared, then you feel like you're ready for whatever happens, right? And for example, I would say, make sure to always have your business cards with you. Right, yeah. That's a very good way to actually show, don't worry, I'm a photographer, I'm here, I'm doing something, I'm not a creep, you know? <laughs> right, it legitimizes your presence there, yeah. And that it's also a conversation starter. Like, 
don't worry, here's my contact card. If, if you want a copy of the image, you can have it. And I promise you, before I do anything with it at all, I'm going to run it by you, for example. And that tends right. to calm people a lot. If you have that, that whole pitch, if you have it rehearsed, then even if something unexpected happens, you sort of feel like you're ready to handle it. Yeah. And then the second thing I would, I would say is just put yourself out of your comfort zone. Like if you're scared of people noticing that you're taking their picture, actually make sure that they notice you. Right, yeah. Take it as a creative exercise. Like get out on the street, find an interesting person, and before taking their picture, make sure that you're going to capture their attention. Like actually force it to happen. In a in a situation where you can control what's going to happen, right? Because if you're if you're trying to if you're trying to you know be invisible and then someone sees you, that's when you get the feeling of ah they caught me like and that you're off balance right there, right? But if you're if you know full well this person is going to see me because I'm going to make myself seen, then that's okay. In other words, you want to be in control of the situation so that they don't catch you unaware. Exactly. And once you've done that, once you've done that a few times, then when it happens by chance, you're already familiar with the conversation. You're already familiar with the situation because it's happened before under controlled circumstances and you can react to it with more experience. Right. Do you think there's something to be said for not necessarily having a mentor, but just having like going out and, and shooting in a small group or in a pair, just having someone else with you at the time to sort of ease that? Do you find that that helps or do you find that that's, that's just worse because then you're not far enough out of your comfort zone? It can help. I guess it depends a lot on the person. Sometimes people push each other. Yeah. And sometimes they, they sort of scare each other away. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, it, it depends a lot on the type of person that you have with you, I guess. But if it's someone who has a healthy curiosity and doesn't mind just trying new things and seeing what happens. That's that's what it's all about. Yeah. No, that makes sense. I mean, it's just, again, I think that first contact is the one that matters. And this, this approach that you just described with uh, forcing that moment to happen, essentially, but doing it so that it's under your control, I think that's something that, um, that I would like to try because it changes, it just changes the way that that situation unfolds. And Perhaps after it's happened the first time, after you've gone through that once, um, you kind of realize that, okay, well, this is not so bad. And from there, uh, you, you can sort of move on to the rest of it. I think it's just that literally that first step, that first encounter is concerning. And it's just unusual if you're not used to it, because, um, for instance, if you're out on the town and you just know that people are aware of you there as a photographer, Whereas typically you might be used to not being noticed um, or directly engaging with people in a in a portraiture situation, right? Uh, it's just a different it's a different thing, and I, I think actually that that point about bringing a business card or or having something else of that um, ilk with you to to just legitimize the fact that you are um, you have a purpose and a skill set there. You're not like this is intentional. I'm not yeah. being weird. It's it's this is what I do. Yeah, you're not stealing the moment. You're not being subversive. It's just this is actually what you're out to do. Yeah, no, I think that makes sense. Because the few times that I've had someone ask or, you know, be, become curious about what you're doing, the worst possible response that you can give is I'm not doing anything. I'm just minding my own business. That's just about the worst thing you can do. Well, yeah, because it's a lie. <laughs> you just have to own it. Acknowledge that, yeah, I'm, I'm trying to take your picture because I, what I saw looked interesting to me and I want to take a picture of it. Are you okay with it? Are you not? You can always offer to delete the images if the person, you know, takes issue with what you're doing. That's okay too. 
don't be don't be afraid to just say look i'm sorry i apologize if you want me to i just i'll just delete the images i'll do it right in front of you so that you see that they're all gone that's okay too yeah but that's that's almost never happened to me like just the once and i didn't even need to delete the images because i hadn't taken any to begin with so yeah no i i think that's good uh, that's obviously that's the kind of confrontation that i think stops people the fear of that sort of encounter even if ultimately it's not harmful like at worst like you said you lose a couple of images it's not the end of the world but i think just the fear of having to have that conversation is daunting right uh, so it's always good to hear that it's it happens so infrequently because you do a fair bit of street photography and if you only really have one such story to tell that's you know that's pretty good odds and i think it's very psychological because when you're with the camera many times you 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 become so fascinated by something and spend 15 minutes trying to take the, pe the perfect picture of it and i guarantee you nobody cares yeah like the people that are around you they're not even seeing you yeah and it doesn't matter if you're taking a picture of a lamppost on the street or if you're trying to take a picture of someone else people are minding their own business and you can be very 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 over the top and still people don't notice most of the time right yeah no and that certainly helps in a in a more cosmopolitan city um you can see in places like toronto and i expect madrid is very similar where there's all sorts of very very interesting characters in in these downtown areas yeah. and very often like you say they're doing all sorts of strange things and really not being noticed you know people do not uh specifically zone in on these people they, they they're avoiding them they're just minding they, their own business basically is the uh is the general attitude and so i think it's just hard to internalize the fact that as a street photographer you fall into that same category of, of person that's probably going to be ignored by people around you like no one you're not that important <laughs> yeah. no one really cares what you're up to right they've they've all got their own problems to worry about and the thing is for the few people that do notice my experience and i bet most street photographers will have the same the same opinion is that people actually like having their picture taken especially when they identify you as a serious photographer as opposed to a weirdo yeah once they they know that you're a real photographer like they actually like having their picture taken and and that's been my experience definitely the vast majority of the people that did notice i was taking their picture they were happy about it right that's surprising because you you're kind of prepared for them to be pissed at you but but then they're oh that's so cool can you send me the image wow done yeah I wrote an article on analog sensors a couple of years back on the Olympus 17 millimeter lens, right? The you know the 1.8, yep. which is great lens for street photography. Love that lens. And uh, among the images in that article, there was one of uh, one man and one woman that were chatting on the street, and I don't know, I I, I just felt they looked interesting, and I snapped their picture, and I published the article. The picture was in there. And I was just minding my business one day, like two weeks later at a cafe, writing with the, with the computer, probably working on another review or something like that. And then I noticed that the guy in front of me across the table is the guy from the picture. Yeah. So I just told him, I didn't say anything to him when I actually took the image. But in that moment, two weeks later, I approached him and I told him, you know what? And I, I remembered he was carrying a guitar Right. Yeah. When I when I took the image, so I I just asked him, "Excuse me, you play the guitar, don't you?" And he looked at me like completely <laughs> blown away. Like, How do you know? And I, I think I have a picture of you. 
<laughs> and I showed him the image and he was fascinated by it. And I asked him, I actually asked him, you know, I, I wasn't sure whether to tell you to approach you because I don't know if people usually enjoy when this happens, when, you know, when you take their image without them knowing. Yeah. And he looked at me and he said, well, it helps when the picture is cool. <laughs> so right. yeah, that was it. Yeah. And you know what? I, I love, I love stories like that where street photography has, has opened up a conversation or just had a, a moment occur that wouldn't otherwise. It's, you know, a connection with a stranger. Yeah. We're Facebook friends now. Oh, there you go. See? So, <laughs> that's pretty cool. Yeah. I, I think the only other side of this, um, this worry thing is uh, potentially related to legal ramifications. And right. a lot of this is going to depend on where you are in the world in terms of, first of all, what you're allowed to shoot in public places, and second of all, what you're allowed to do with those images afterwards. So I don't know if, the, like, does this cross your mind at all? Is is Madrid um, an area where you have to worry about this at all? Or is it kind of anything goes and you run with it? I don't usually worry about it too much, right. to be honest. I probably should, but, <laughs> but <laughs> yeah. I I don't, I just don't. And I don't know, I don't, I don't consider myself a like a commercial photographer. I don't sell the images. Yeah. So I think what I do with them is fine. I just use them to illustrate or to accompany articles. Right. And I think that's fair. That's 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 fair game. The general rule of thumb that I read often and it seems to apply pretty much everywhere in the world is that anywhere where there's not a reasonable expectation of privacy, you're allowed to take pictures. Yeah. Then the the subject becomes a little bit more complex once you want to sell the images that you probably should check your your country's legislation to make sure you're not doing anything wrong but if you're just going to use them for yourself then that's perfectly okay yeah i, I think the problem is is that often you don't really know where the distinction lies in terms of commercial usage because for example you are not explicitly selling that image for profit it's true but if you are including it as a you know header image in a review and that review is making you affiliate income yeah. does that count as commercial usage or does and i think it doesn't but again legally it may or may not depending on where you are and stuff like that so just i think this is another thing that people probably worry too much about because realistically uh the, the chances of any problems arising here are are very slim and again in the case of genuine street photography being sold as fine art i think that there um if you're if you're doing that if you're the kind of photographer who can make a living doing that you probably already have an assistant nearby getting model releases and things like that it's you yeah know, I, i'm not sure that there are that many casual photographers making reasonable amounts of money selling street photos that's just not probably not yeah probably not i mean it's a very creatively satisfying genre but it's not a very successful one commercially so right yeah yeah most people are just taking the images because they like them and i'm one of those so that <laughs> i don't think that's <laughs> there's uh, a risk of you getting into too much trouble if you're just doing that well fair enough all right so that's you know that's that's how to get started i think but we should also dig in a little bit to the various techniques that have emerged around street photography. It's it's a very particular kind of photography because you're you're sort of snatching these fleeting moments and sometimes you're doing it directly, like you said, interacting, but other times you do um, what has been called shooting from the hip. Yeah. In other words, you're, it, you're not necessarily literally shooting from the hip, but there's this idea of concealing the fact that you are taking the photo 
in an effort to get a more uh, genuine or neutral moment that is not colored by the fact that someone has become aware of the fact that you are there with a camera. You're trying to sort of avoid that. And it's, again, it's not better or worse. It's just a different approach to it. But do you, do you find your, I, I know you do this, this direct interaction stuff. Do you find yourself doing some, some shooting from the hip as well? Oh yeah, definitely. Definitely. And I have lots of pictures that I, I can't believe they didn't notice that I took them. <laughs> <laughs> because I'm, I'm not shy about that. Like I right. will get really close and, and fire away and, Sometimes people notice, but most times they don't. Okay. It always surprises me, like, like just how far you can take it, and people still don't notice. <laughs> it's it's crazy, but yeah, but yeah, I mean, there's there's some value in those images, definitely, absolutely, and many people, I'm sure, will actually prefer them to the more direct approach. Uh, in fact, they are so popular and so trendy, and that's why we have electronic shutters in every camera right now, <laughs> because that's what they tell you when you buy a camera, this has an electronic shutter. You're going to be able to snap pictures and no one will notice. Right. Yeah. Because it's silent. So there's no sound. There's nothing to give you away yeah. as long as you're subtle. Yeah. That's a very popular feature for street photographers. Absolutely. And it's nice to have. I mean, because the fact that I don't mind being being seen or being noticed doesn't mean that sometimes I would like not to be noticed. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. I, sometimes the image calls for me not to be noticed because I want to capture a spontaneous moment. And if they notice me, I'm going to ruin it. Yep. Yeah. So yeah, that's, that's important. Absolutely important. Definitely. Well, along the same lines of technique, one of our listeners, Mark would like to know um, more about zone focusing and zone focusing is this thing that uh, you, you kind of read about a fair bit, um, but often it's not really explained. Um, do you want to kind of walk us through how, like what, what this technique entails and where it becomes useful and things like that? Zone focusing is a bit on the way out, I would say, because it requires the lens to have a depth of field scale. Okay. In other words, the markings that show the actual distance where things will be in focus. Exactly. And since mirrorless systems and cameras and lenses are usually uh, focused by wire, that means the relationship between the focus ring and the actual plane of focus that the lens is at is not fixed. Like they're not mechanically linked. Yeah. So you can turn the ring and keep turning it and it never stops. Yeah. But eventually the lens reaches a point where it won't focus either closer or, for, or farther away. Yeah. But you can keep turning the ring. With a mechanical mechanically linked focus uh, mechanism, that doesn't happen. There's a hard stop at the end of each direction. You reach a point where you can't turn anymore. Uh, so the idea for the whole zone focusing technique, the, the, the principle is that if you're shooting at a closed enough aperture, like f8, for example, or f5.6, um, you can sort of guess the amount of the space in front of you that's going to be in focus with practice. Just by knowing where the end of the hard stop of the focusing ring is and the beginning, you can sort of get used to the how much throw there is and Eventually, you learn to, just by muscle memory, control the the in focus plane. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but this is where this is where the Leica cameras, uh, or specifically the Leica lenses, uh, having a focus tab kind of comes in handy because then there's a physical element that that uh, you can get used to. Because if it's just a if it's just a ring, yes, you can kind of figure out how far along you are. But if there's a tab, then it becomes much easier 
again, in terms of muscle memory to realize that, okay, if it's at this position here that my finger can just automatically push it to, then I know that anything from four feet to infinity is going to be in focus. And that's just something that I do without thinking about it, without having to, uh, you know, fiddle with the camera really. I'm just, I'm just swinging that lens, uh, using that focus tab to just swing it to where I know, and then I can just get the image. Yeah, and the whole idea is that because the, the tab is there, it's also visual. You, you can see where the tab is right. and you don't have to, to look at the scale actually because you already know where it is. Yeah. Uh, the, the, also, the zone focusing technique, we should probably mention this, I don't, I don't think we have, is just for manual focus. Right, like, yeah. Autofocus doesn't, doesn't matter here. Yeah. <laughs> it's exclusively for manual focus. And the whole idea is that you want to be able to take an image without looking through the viewfinder. Okay, yeah. Like this is in order to be able to just know where the camera is focused and just fire away without having to raise it to your eye. Because once you raise it to your eye, you can just adjust focus because you're already there. Right, yeah. But the, the point of the zone focusing technique is that without raising the camera, because sometimes that will cause people to notice you, you can just shoot from the hip, as they say, and know that the your focus is going to be correct. Right. Which is, it's a great technique. I mean, uh, it was a very clever way of getting around a technical limitation that cameras had back then. And these days, uh, unfortunately, since we're kind of in the middle of a transition to towards electronic cameras and focused by wire systems, it's kind of going away and disappearing a little bit. Do, do you think that's, that's a successful transition though? Like uh, this actually relates to another listener question we have from, from Tay who wanted to know if the uh, the quality of autofocus technology and specifically like continuous autofocus these days does that sort of make zone focusing as a technique irrelevant like is it has it superseded zone focusing i don't think so uh i think the the camera manufacturers definitely want you to believe that but yeah <laughs> i don't think that's actually true because yeah. in my mind the fact that a lens is pretty awesome at autofocusing is not a reason to make it worse at manual focusing. Right, yeah. The only reason to make that decision is because it's you save money in making the lens because the lens can be mechanically simpler. Yeah. So it's cheaper to make and therefore for the manufacturer, it's a more attractive proposition because you're going to charge the same, it's going to cost you less, so you're going to get bigger profits out of it. Yeah. That's pretty much the only justification I can think of to make a lens worse at manual focusing because they are not related. You can still have pretty awesome autofocus performance and still maintain uh, a good manual focus system. So no, I don't buy that one has to replace the other. Both should be able to to coexist and we would be better off if that was the case. I think there's also a philosophical difference though, because like you said, the, the whole point of zone focusing is that you're able to get the shot that you want by like with confidence without having to raise the camera to your eye, without having to look at a screen or a viewfinder. So if like by default, autofocus is doing something that's, you know, like you, you can't be certain of what it's trying to use as the subject if you're shooting from the hip right. with autofocus. You can say, you know, open to F8 and something like that where it kind of doesn't matter what it's choosing as the subject. But fundamentally, the whole point of zone focusing is that you know with absolute confidence that anything within the range that you're aware of is going to be in focus because the camera is not trying to change subject on you. You are basically exactly. using your own physical mobility to put the subject where you need it to be rather than telling the camera or expecting the camera to bring it to you um, 
from from that direction. So I think I think there's there's that as well that that informs it. Like zone focusing is just a very old school approach to this whole problem that does not rely on the mechanics of a camera, whether it's autofocus, continuous or single or anything, it's just, no, I forget it. I am telling you what to focus on. I will put the subject there. All you have to do is take the photo when I press the button. And it's just a different relationship um, that I think autofocus, even if it worked perfectly, it's just a fundamentally different way of solving that same problem. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And the the current um, avenue for innovation in, in the industry seems to be autofocus intelligence and companies are coming with smarter and smarter systems that are able to track subjects in different situations, yep. uh, you know, for sports, for whatever different types of movement that the camera can recognize and choose the subject accordingly and not only choose it, but actually keep focus on it. Yeah. Uh, and that's great. That's great. But again, the fact that they're becoming smarter and smarter does not necessarily mean that you have to take the other thing away. Yeah. Yeah, and that's actually a big downside and something that that frustrates me. Um, and I think I've I've whined about this before on the show is is that I really wish that modern lenses also had fully manual focus control because, like you said, there's no reason, like technically, that they can't. And it's just so satisfying when you pick up. And this is something, by the way, that if you if you've never had an opportunity to go to a camera store, to a show, or something like that, and just work with a manual focus lens, you should do that because. It's very eye-opening to to actually have that level of one-to-one control and then go back to a focus-by-wire system. Even the very best focus-by-wire systems today are nowhere near the level of tactile precision that you get from just knowing that mechanically you are in control of the focal plane. And I think that that's something that has been lost in the march of technology. Um, unfortunately, I don't really see it coming back. I know Zeiss makes the... Um, is it the Milvis line or which one that, that has the, the full manual focus? Pretty much every every lens that size makes other than the ones for the Sony system, they're all uh, actual manual focus. Like the Milvis, the Odos, all of those uh, lines, they are all manual focus. Okay, yeah, so they're still doing it. But I think that outside of, of uh, Zeiss's labs, unfortunately, we're just not seeing that very much. And I don't think that, I don't think that enough people miss it to predict that it's going to make a comeback anytime soon. It just doesn't, it doesn't seem likely, which is unfortunate, but. Yeah. I mean, all industries seem to go in circles. So probably, I, I wouldn't say never. It probably will come back at some point, like vinyl did, like film did. Yeah, true. Uh, these things have a way of coming back. And who knows, maybe 20 years from now, the biggest innovation in in the industry will be that a company is making lenses with actual manual <laughs> focus again. <laughs> that would be funny. It would but I, it wouldn't surprise me either. So yeah. Well, I'm, I'm trying to do my best here to steer us away from gear talk for as long as I can. We will, we will get into the, the technicalities of it. Um, but before we do that, I, there, there's a few more listener questions that I thought were interesting. Um, Albert wants to know if we use landscape photography techniques um, to apply to street work. And the example that he cited was doing things like um, waiting for the light to do just that right thing, like waiting for a sunbeam and someone to pass through it and that kind of, like, do you find yourself doing that? Or is street photography by definition a less manufactured scene for you? Uh, I guess it depends when and where you are. If you're in your own city, you can definitely plan for the light. Yeah. If you are already aware of the locations and how the light hits certain spots 
you can plan to be there at that time and then sort of play with it. Yeah. Uh, but by nature, I think street photography is a little bit more spontaneous than that. And most times you just work with what you've got in front of you at the time that you're out. And yeah. the light being harsh, you know, at midday is not going to ruin a good street image, in my opinion. Right. You're not looking for soft highlights. You're not looking for a person to appear more beautiful. You're looking for something interesting. And the fact that the light is harsh can actually make a scene even more interesting. One of the street photographers that I like the most is Rinzi Ruiz, and he plays with the light incredibly well with contrast. He he has really stark shadows and, and light, uh, you know, intersecting in the same image. And that's the kind of picture that I think has a lot of power yeah. when you see it. Yeah. Uh, he definitely plans for the light. He just happens to like that kind of light. Yeah. I mean, I think that this is this is the sort of thing where, uh, you know, we, we always try to emphasize how important it is to be good at um, working with light as a photographer. I mean, that is your main tool, but I think people underestimate just how important it is um, to, to wait for it, to manipulate it, to do things like that. But in the case of street photography, you're right, because there's that element of spontaneity, it, it can be more... Uh, difficult to, uh, it almost feels more like you're doing what you called urban landscape work if you're yeah. waiting for the light and doing the planning and whatever. But on the other hand, I have seen um, examples and I'm, I wish I could come up with one off the top of my head now, but I've seen examples where photographers are being spontaneous in the sense that they're just wandering through an unfamiliar city, but they will spot, for example, a light beam and spend five minutes waiting for the perfect person to walk through it and yeah. things like that, I think, are, Those are great. Yeah, like I think that's fine, and that definitely still counts as as not really, uh, you know, a planned shot per se, because you you know you didn't you weren't aware that the light was going to do that. You weren't really looking for it. It's just you came across it, and then you spent a few extra minutes to get that shot. I think that's uh, again, if you're if you're good at working with light, that's you know everything is fair game. It's not like. And again, it doesn't really matter if someone says, well, that's not a street photograph because you planned for it. Like, it, who cares? It's not, that's not the point. Right. <laughs> um, but especially because there is so much, um, when you're shooting wider, um, light is one of the only ways that you can actually control what we focus on. Um, so when you're telling a story with it, that that becomes an important element. Like if there is a sunbeam or if there is um, a shadow or something that functions as a leading line. I, you know, I tend to see and appreciate a lot of street photography where they've used shadows and they've used architecture to um, steer our attention in a particular way. And I think that that's something that just, you know, you develop an eye for that kind of thing and it becomes second nature. So you're not planning for it. You're not really like finding those spots and then waiting and, and you know, manufacturing a scene. It's just something that you notice in a landscape and you capture it. It just happens to be in a city. Yeah. So Christine would like to know um, what city or country we would most like to photograph in terms of street photography, but also the favorite city or country that we already have photographed. So I'm turning this one to you first. That's going to be the same answer for both. Oh, okay. Well, then. <laughs> because my favorite city in the world is New York. Okay. And for street photography, it is an awesome city. Okay. I'm sure we're all familiar with famous street photographs taken in New York. Yeah. And I've been there and I've taken pictures of it, but only with my phone because it was before I became interested in photography, you know, in a more serious way. Oh, okay. So I would definitely like to come back with a proper camera this time and spend some time, 
you know, I, I've already done all the touristy bits, so I don't need to waste my time doing those again. I can just spend an entire week on the street and with the camera shooting and enjoying the process. Then that, and I'm actually looking forward to doing that this summer. Yeah, I mean, yeah, New York is definitely the uh, the archetype for a an urban center. So of course, if anywhere is going to work for street photography, you would expect New York to be it. How about you? Yeah, if I had to answer the same question, I probably would not be able to give a useful answer just because I don't shoot street. Right. And and a little later, I'll make a, a horrible confession. But before that, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I also appreciated New York for the same reasons that you just mentioned. Uh, it feels like there's just a bounty of photographic opportunities there if you're a street photographer there's you know it's just such a massive city yeah um and and there's so much character to it but i I would also point out boston i found um similar to new york in terms of its character but maybe a little more old-fashioned a little more green so that was that was one but if i had to pick a, a city or country that i would like to do street photography in it would probably be somewhere in the far east um, just because I think that that would be a more interesting thing for me to capture because it would be unfamiliar. You know, like I, I, the idea of a, an American city or a European city even just doesn't really excite me right. anymore. I would like to see, um, you know, I'd like to shoot in Mumbai or in Shanghai or um, Tokyo or, you know, just something that is culturally different, architecturally different and... Right just like way outside my comfort zone so that I'm reacting to it with total, you know, spontaneity. Like there's, there's no way to plan for it. Cause I don't, I don't have any way to expect, I don't know the rhythm of the city. I don't, you know, that that's the kind of thing that I think would be of interest to me if I were to pick um, a city to go to for that something, something out East. That's a very good answer. Actually, Tokyo, man, that's going to be Awesome. Be a fun one, right? And it's full of camera stores. So if something breaks or you lose something or you just have some spare change. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. We should we should actually talk about the gear though, because we, we have we have some some listener questions, but also we have to deal with the world's greatest debate in street photography, which is twenty-eight mil versus thirty-five mil as the focal length of choice. And I'm actually gonna say fifty too. And fifty, yeah, I suppose fifty's in there as well. Yeah. Yeah. So among the the three, which one is your choice? I have a feeling I know based on the review we were just talking about. But mm, I don't know. Let me think about that for a second. <laughs> yeah, definitely thirty five. Thirty five, absolutely. Yeah, fair enough. I think that that's the uh, that's the classic one. Um, we recently saw twenty eight seeing a bit of a resurgence, um, not only because of uh, Leica's um, Leica Q, which which has a twenty eight mil. Um, field of view, but also something like uh, Fujifilm's X70, which also had that equivalent. Um, I just, for some reason, I feel like we're seeing more of it. The the Ricoh GR series is the same. Yeah, I was going to say that. The Ricoh is massive. Yeah. That's such a popular street photography camera. Yeah, so I mean, I think there's there's arguments to be made for uh, for either, but fundamentally, it's it's always about the kind of story that you're telling because obviously, the wider you go, the more stuff ends up in your frame, and to me, that makes it more difficult because you know you, you can't really focus attention as easily but it also opens the door to more interesting scenes because there's well there's more stuff so yeah it's it'd be hard for me to pick yeah i haven't i haven't shot much with a 28 to be honest i've shot a fair bit with a 35 and a 50 yeah and between those i do notice the extra few extra degrees of field of view that i get with the 35 and i notice it in two main ways First, the obvious one is that, yes, you can fit more in the frame. Yep. And second, 
if you want to take a picture of someone, you have to get a lot closer to them. Right. Yeah. Otherwise, the, the subject isn't going to be the main protagonist of the picture. It's very difficult with a with a wide lens to get someone to jump at you on the final image unless you're very close to them. Yeah, you have to really be right up in their face, especially with a 28 mil. I mean, you're you're basically right in front of them, so yeah. any hope of that whole subtlety thing kind of goes out the window unless unless you are doing the literal shooting from the hip thing. Yeah. <laughs> It's a challenge too and and a good way to force yourself to get over the fear like we were mentioning earlier. Uh, to use a wide lens because that's going to force you to get closer. Yeah. If you sort of take refuge in a telephoto, uh, you're going to get nice images, but there's going to be something missing there. At least in my experience, I've I've done street photography with a 90 millimeter lens, like actually the Olympus 45 that you just bought again. Yeah, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> Uh, that was a very, well, it's one of my favorite lenses that I've ever owned. And I, I did use it on the street of, uh, for a while. Uh, but yeah, in the end, I ended up, you know, replacing it with a, with a wider lens because I feel it's more exciting. It's more interesting. Yeah. I, I don't know why, but for some reason, whenever you start to push past 50 mil and you're shooting on the street, that that's where things really sort of fall into creeper territory to me because you're so you're so separated from what you're actually shooting yeah and it it just it feels like a different thing right you're not you're not really participating in the scene in the same way and I don't know there, there's something about that that um that doesn't seem compatible with the the spirit of street photography now mind you of course people have done wonderful street work with telephoto stuff but I, I do think that it it falls into a slightly different category and I'm certainly not yeah. tempted by that. And it's, yeah, it's also because when you're in a city, um, you're often in tighter quarters. So once you've got a telephoto lens, it's it actually can be quite difficult to get the framing that you want because you don't really have enough room to maneuver in a lot of cases. So right. that's where the wider angle, I think, also comes in handy is because it it affords you a little bit more flexibility in how you frame things because you can actually move around and, and affect stuff without being kind of backed up against a wall or, you know, backing into traffic or whatever you're, you're ending up doing. Right. But you mentioned something very interesting, which I, I want to circle back to a little bit. You said once you go past 50, you're, you're in creeper territory. And that's actually... Very, very interesting because I think that happens because people know intuitively that zoom lenses and long telephoto lenses are big. Yeah. And I suspect that's what happened uh, in the incident that I described earlier. The 35 mil that I have is very big. Yes. And it looks like a telephoto lens. Yeah. So I'm pretty sure the person that approached me, he thought I was taking a picture, you know, from afar with a long lens. Yeah. And when I actually showed him, Dude, I hadn't even seen you. I was taking a picture of whatever. That's where the confusion sort of happened, you know, because it looks like a long lens and people see it and they, they think it's like a 150 millimeter lens or something like that. Yeah. And I mean, to be fair, from across the street, I don't know if I could pick out the fact that it's a 35 mil prime instead of a, you know, whatever telephoto. So it's it's perfectly reasonable for a stranger to to make that kind of mistake yeah. um, and and interpret the scene differently. But it, it does lead to an interesting thing here, which which is the the sort of comparative value between shooting with a bigger camera system versus a smaller one. Um, and this is where we, again, a lot of these cameras that we've mentioned, the Ricoh GR, the, the X70, the Leica Q, these are 
recognizably very good cameras for street photography. And what they tend to have in common is that they're compact. They're they're quite small. The lenses yeah. do not look very big. In some cases, they're literally pocketable. Um, I, I'm, to me, that seems like the better solution. It, it seems like a purpose-built tool for this kind of photography. So I understand why that happens. Um, in your case, you've kind of explicitly opted for the opposite approach, which is, I don't care how big the camera system is. I'm, you know, my priorities are different. I'm after the absolute best in terms of the optics or, you know, the comfort of the body. Because I, I mean, I don't know about you, but I see plenty of people doing street photography with really big DSLRs. You know, they're wandering around with with 5D Mark III's and things and, and Nikon D800's. Yeah, it's what you had to use if you wanted good image quality until up a few, until a few years ago. Yeah, but it's it's just interesting because I feel like the way that you shoot with something like that is perceived differently versus something like the, uh, the X70 or the X100, which, uh, you know, they're just inherently less, um, I don't know if threatening is really the right word, but they're, they're just less imposing. Yeah, that's probably true. Yeah, I... I in my experience, the bigger the camera, the the more attention it gets, but it's not decisive. Like if you have a DSLR with a big lens, that also kind of says you're a pro. Right. Yep. And people tend to look at professionals in a different light. Uh, but when you have a big mirrorless camera, you're sort of in the middle. And that's what when people don't know what to make of you. Yeah. Yeah, because there's no clear association between like, oh, it's a DSLR, they're exactly. professional. It's sort of it's like, like I can't tell if you're a serious <laughs> photographer or if you're just a creep. Yeah, and then that's <laughs> yeah, that's where confusion comes from. Yeah, well, I mean, the the other thing is um, that we should mention is is that the iPhone fits in here. You know, apropos of our conversation with uh, with Aaron recently, the iPhone is now quite an interesting tool for street photography because it gives you one step of extra stealth in the sense that we're so used to seeing people looking at their phones when they're walking through the streets right. that it doesn't even register as a as a photographic thing like it's just they're looking at their phone and it, that's just who cares they're maybe they're a tourist or something it doesn't it doesn't register in the same way so i feel like there's opportunities to use a an iphone to get those kinds of real candid moments where you're not noticed but a lot closer to the subject than you would typically be able to get with a camera so that's like an entire new zone that's been opened and by the way it's not just the iphone obviously but smartphone photography in general has has opened this new door within street photography that i i look forward to uh, to seeing explored yeah and and i don't think it's just a stealth angle i think it's also the fact that people the, the perception they have of the iPhone and other smartphones as cameras is different. Like they don't mind if you take a picture of them with a smartphone because they feel, ah, it's a smartphone. You're not going to do anything huge with that photo. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> if only they knew, right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, but you're right. It, it's perceived differently. Whereas if it's a camera, even if it's a, a small camera, that suddenly it's like, what are you going to do with that picture? Yeah, because you can do all sorts of things. It's... It's a real photograph coming out of a camera like that. Yeah. People will eventually get over that. But as of today, I think it, that's still the case. Yeah. Um, one thing that uh, I forgot to mention before, Christine had asked us what our preferred gear is for street photography. So, I mean, I, again, I imagine that yours we, we just talked about, but is it in fact, like if you... Oh, no, actually, no. No, okay. Well, Mine is just the one I happen to own, but <laughs> I, I wouldn't say it's my preferred gear. All right. So what would the ideal be? Uh, probably the X100F. Oh. Not a Leica of some sort, some M body. Mm, no, 
No, because I do want to have the possibility to use manual uh, autofocus when I want. Right. And the M's don't have it. So it would be either the Sony RX1R2 or the X100F. Those are the two cameras that I would want to have with me when I'm shooting on the street. Or the Pen F, for that matter. That's also a pretty great straight street camera. Yeah, I think that the Pen F is an underappreciated gem for that because it brings to the table um, stabilization, which basically none of the other cameras yeah. that we've mentioned do. And that's a pretty big point in its favor. Well, uh, for street photography, I don't think it's that important. Because if you're trying to freeze movement, you're going to have to use a fast shutter speed anyway. Yeah, that's so, true. That's true. Stabilization is secondary there, I would say. Yeah. No, that's a good point. That's a good point. As for me, I think uh, I think the X100F is probably, probably my choice as well. Um, I think the RX1R2 is a tempting camera. Like if, you know, all the money in the world was available to me, um, it would be tempting because that that lens and that sensor are just incredible and the output is is basically unparalleled in something of that uh, form factor but yeah. i i don't know if the ergonomics would be um satisfying to me like i i've i've only held and worked with the first generation RX1R but it just really did not feel very comfortable um and so i i would be a little concerned that it would be another one of those cases where I have all of the IQ in the world available to me, but it just is not a camera that makes me want to go out and shoot. And that would be a deal breaker, right? I mean, it doesn't it doesn't matter how... I can hear Dan Hawk banging his head against the desk right from here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, he's, he's, you know, he's said this to us, really, that it's it's just a matter of... Hi, Dan, by the way. Yes, hello, Dan. Um, it's just a matter of, uh, of ergonomic preferences. Like some people get along with one approach and some people get along with a different approach. It's, it's just the way it is. And historically, I have not had the most um, luck with, with Sony bodies in terms of ergonomics. But That's true. I wonder why that is. I, I think, honestly, I think it's, it's got to do with the cameras that I've worked with. Um, you know, I'm, I'm pretty sure that um, the A7 III generation, whenever that shows itself, um, I'm sure they're they're going to make it more comfortable, and at that point, it is going to be um, you know a very tempting thing because, again, you you just you can kind of rely on Sony to be making the cameras with the absolute maximum possible image quality. So that becomes tempting if the ergonomics angle is no longer something that doesn't apply, right? Because now I can say right. yes, I know the A7R2 or whichever um, would give me. A tremendous image quality potential and you know huge resolution and but if I don't enjoy shooting with it then it's just a non-starter for me if I did enjoy shooting with it and it had all that stuff then I'd have to find something else to complain about and it would just be more of a struggle right personally I think that something like the RX1R series of cameras is it requires some time to get used to the ergonomics yeah because I've handled them both of them actually the the R1 and the R2 uh, they are, yeah, they are confusing at first. Uh, it takes some getting used to, but I think there's something that I could grow to to actually enjoy using. Yeah, I would welcome the challenge definitely because it's just incredible to have a full frame camera that fits in your pocket, like literally fits in your well in your coat pocket, not not in your jeans pocket. Yeah. Hint, hint, Sony, uh, if you're listening, we would welcome the opportunity. Uh, <laughs> uh, but no, I, I hear you. And and also this this reminds me of another factor that I think is particularly important in street photography, which is familiarity with your camera gear. Um, you know, on some level, on some level, it kind of doesn't matter what you're shooting with as long as you are intimately familiar with how it works and how to um, change the settings to do what you need 
um, in the blink of an eye, basically, because you're you're yeah. really trying to um, react very quickly to things that are unfolding in front of you. So being able to um, lean on a certain degree of confidence with your camera is crucial, I think, because if you're still at the stage where you're kind of like, oh, wait, what, you know, what did I assign this dial to? Or was this one the thing? Or do I have to do the other? Like it just, you're, you're, if you're getting tangled up in the mechanics of how your camera operates, uh, that's going to be what loses you the shot versus uh, the camera having a slightly lower resolution or a smaller sensor or, you know, whatever it is. So that's, I think that's the the biggest thing to to focus on in terms of gear is just learn your camera inside and out, whatever it is. Before you worry about upgrading, just worry about learning what you have. Yeah, that's an excellent point. And it actually takes us back to the whole zone focusing technique. It, it, that's a technique that requires you to actually become familiar with the gear right yeah and this is just the same it's the same thing yeah the more familiar you are with the camera the the better you're going to be able and the quicker you're going to be uh, at reacting to those moments and capturing them yeah well there's a can of worms that i kind of i want to open because it's it seems crucial it's a big can of worms um (laughs) I'm, i'm okay so theoretically if you have seen a bunch of street photography, I'm willing to guess that like 90% of it has been in black and white. Yeah. And there's this perception that all you have to do is go out and, you know, make some people feel awkward, get it on, on your sensor, turn it to black and white, and you're a street photographer. And uh, this is a little bothersome. You have to boost the contrast, though. Right. Yeah, that helps, too. Uh, but but there there is this weird um, bias towards black and white in terms of street photography, and I I think that it's just rooted in the history of the genre in the sense that all, all of the classic street photographers were shooting in an era where black and white was um, just the predominant film that they were able to process in that volume and quickly and cheaply and you know whatever the case was. That's the origin, definitely. But I think there's there's more to it. I think that we have grown to associate a black and white image with an image that is historically relevant for some reason. Yeah. Uh, so that association is still there. And that when you look at a picture in black and white, your brain sees it in a different light. Right. Black and white makes everything look more interesting. It kind of does, <laughs> doesn't true. it? It's, it's a weird thing. And, and it's interesting because, for example, Shannon does not like black and white photography in general. Like that, she just responds to it um, negatively. Whereas... Um, a lot of other folks will respond very positively to it. It just, like you said, it seems to impart something special to an image, even if it's not actually that good an image by itself or in color. Well, that's just it, uh, because black and white can hide many imperfections. Yeah. Like from the skin, the colors, uh, it, it can just take away things that would be noticeable in a color image and kind of grab your attention. And that's not the point of the image. So you just if you take that image and turn it into black and white, suddenly your attention is where it should be. And that's important too. So let me ask you this. When you're editing your street photography photos, you actually have a very nice balance between color and black and white, but what informs your choice? Like where, what kind of photo is it that will trigger your mind to say, okay, this one we're processing in black and white? Oh, that's a great question. I think in this particular case, the images from this review, it's the sky because a cloudy sky just looks awesome in black and white. Yes, yeah. And there's something to it that I can't really put into words, but in in color, it just doesn't look the same way. Yeah. Uh, The exception to that in the review, if you you notice, there's a picture of a building that says Schweppes on it. Yep. Uh, That's a very iconic location in Madrid. I 
actually left that in color because I wanted to maintain the yellow in the lettering of the Schweppes. Right. Yep. Because that that yellow is very um, it, it's very familiar for the people who know the building, and actually at night. Those are neons, and they flash in a different color. Each letter flashes in different colors. Okay. So yeah, that's a very iconic location, and color is a big part of why it's iconic. So that's why that picture needed to be in color. Uh, otherwise, it would have it would have gone in black and white, definitely. Yeah. No, I I think there's again I I don't mind the fact that there is a lot of black and white in street photography because there are a lot of cases where I think it makes sense, particularly. I mentioned earlier that um, I really like the kinds of street photos where the photographer has used angles and light and leading lines and shadows and things like that to direct our attention. Yeah. And I feel like um, processing an image like that in black and white really uh, just it lends itself to that same kind of like attention manipulation. Like it does, it's, it's kind of like helping your case. Absolutely. Um, where then you're focusing on different stuff, right? You're not being distracted by the color information. You're really just looking at the tonality of the image, the the way that light changes from part of the frame to another part of the frame. And, you know, that kind of thing I think is great. Um, I'm more just put off by people who take what is, I think, objectively a less interesting photograph, and then they're trying to mask the lack of subject or the lack of interest in the photo right. by flipping it to black and white, right? Like if you've got a subject, if you're if what you're trying to do is focus our attention on a particular element in a photo that's already good, I'm fine. That's no problem. But if it's just being used as a crutch to try and hide the fact that it's not actually a good photo, then that's just it seems to be doing a disservice to the genre as well, right? Like you just see a bunch of very mediocre street photography and I don't know. I, I have I struggle to appreciate that. Yeah, that's fair enough. A big part of why black and white can make an image look better is because you just remove detail from all the shadows, for example, and everything is black. Yeah. And that tends to make many things look better. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I don't know what it is. I don't know why, but it, it just looks more appealing, at least to me. And yeah, that that's definitely something that people do. I try not to, but maybe I'm guilty of doing something like that sometimes. But yeah, generally, the whole, I'm going to flip this to black and white to see if I fix the image. That's not part of my process. I just, right. I just see the image in black and white or I don't. Yeah. And if something tells me that that image needs to be in black and white, that's when I try it. And if after trying, I like it, then, then it stays that way. And if not, I flip it back to color. So... I don't have a strong position on this. Right. But because it's something so intentional in your process, though, do you find yourself ever using like the, um, the the black and white mode on your camera? Like shooting raw, obviously, but but doing it with a black and white profile so that you are seeing no. the scene initially in black and white? No, that's so it's all like you're always shooting in color, but occasionally processing in black and white. Yeah, I don't like that. Okay. I don't know why. I think that would make me miss more photos than it would make me right. get better ones. Yeah, I don't know if that made sense, but... Because I am not seeing the color through the viewfinder, I'm, I think I'm going to miss things that would be interesting or that could be interesting. Yeah, and and I don't want to I don't want to miss them. Yeah, no, I hear you. It's interesting because I have um, so maybe subconsciously the same opinion because you know shooting on a Fujifilm camera, I obviously have access to the Acros film simulation and I adore using it. But I often find that when I'm 
um, when I'm using that profile, I don't shoot for as long. Like I flip to it when I'm already looking at a scene that I think will look good in Acros, and then I'm just sort of confirming it. I very rarely just keep the camera in the Acros film profile as I'm shooting. I don't know why. It's just right. there's something, maybe I'm I'm just not used to it, but there's something almost mildly uncomfortable about not seeing the full color range of a certain scene as I'm shooting it. It breaks the illusion that you're looking through an optical viewfinder. Well, there's that, but there's, yeah, I don't I don't know what it is, but it is interesting because I, like you said, I, I have the same kind of response where I'm not really tempted to, uh, to artificially make it so that I'm like my camera's seeing in black and white. Like that's just something that happens after the fact in my brain. Right. And I'm sometimes confirming with that profile as I'm shooting, but it's never like permanently there. Right. And there's something, uh, something else here too, which is that if you're always seeing things in black and white, that's a bit of a trap too, because you're going to believe that many things are super interesting and you're going to be taking many pictures. And then when you open them in the computer, you're going to think, why did I take a picture of this? This is rubbish. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But everything looks so interesting when you're seeing it in black and white that sometimes you cannot tell whether something is actually interesting or not. Yeah, it becomes overwhelming. Yeah, I think I think that I think the takeaway is that until at least until you have a certain skill level, it's probably safer to shoot in color, just because, like you said, it reinforces the fact that you're seeing things with a more critical eye. You're able to tell if something is just boring and you're not leaning on black and white as the thing that makes an image interesting because fundamentally if the image is interesting in color it's probably going to be interesting in black and white as well and that should just be an intentional choice on your part rather than a happy accident right so but yeah and and i think again once you're uh once you're at a certain skill level and you just know that black and white is your thing then that's a different story but especially when you're just exploring um or if street photography is not your main avenue, then I think you'll end up with stronger images if you force yourself to uh, to capture everything in color, because then, yeah, you're, you're being more critical, essentially. And you have, you make the image. Yeah. You have more control and you're actually making choices instead of just letting the camera determine how the picture is going to look for you. Yeah. All right. So on a parting note, let me, let me ask the sort of the critical question here. Um, is street photography a genre that you love? I mean, I know it's one that you you shoot, and again, you you shoot it more than um, than than Josh and I do. Maybe. By the way, Josh is alive. Um, he's not with us on this particular episode, but he is alive and well. <laughs> he sends his uh, he sends his well wishes. We are just uh, recording at a sort of awkward time when he couldn't make it. So, um, you know, hello, hello, Josh. He's either alive or someone else has logged into his account and is typing and trying to mess with us. Yeah, I mean, who knows? But he says he's alive, so we'll take him at his word. <laughs> uh, but anyway, yeah, so back to my question. Do you do you love street photography? Is it Would you consider it to be one of your favorite genres of photography or among the most creatively satisfying, or is that superseded by another? I would say so because I know that I'm not good at it. Okay. And it's a challenge for me. Right. So creatively, it's very satisfying to put myself out there and keep shooting because I would love to get better. I know I have a long, a really long way to go because I look at my own images and I'm not moved by them, by mm. most of them. And I see what other photographers are able to do and I'm super inspired to just get out there and keep shooting and keep shooting. Uh, I also enjoy the process a lot. So yeah, it's it's definitely one of my favorite genres. Uh, also, I would say portraits too, not studio portraits because those are boring, 
but more planned, more deliberate portraits. I, I love doing those too. In general, I've, I think I've said this before here, I, I just love taking pictures of people. Yeah. Whether it's in a spontaneous, candid way or whether it is in a more deliberate setting. Right. I just love the human the human element and I think photography is a great way of conveying the uniqueness of the human character and that's what gets me out and that's what gets me to pick up the camera and keep shooting. Yeah, it is, isn't it? It's it's cool how when you really manage to capture someone in a photograph, uh, it's almost like the the entire story of who they are and what they would be like to to talk to in person is captured in that image as well. And yeah. for other people looking at it, you you build these stories in your mind about you know who that person is without knowing them, and that's that's fascinating. I, I can't really think of another um, medium that does that in quite the same way. Um, it, it's the same response that you have to a well-written character in a book, but yeah. this is just immediate, right? Because you're not, it's not something that develops over a span of time. It's an image that you take in in a moment and somehow all of that information is just conveyed to you. And that's, that's really cool to me. And the ability of, of, of photography as a medium to elicit empathy in others. Yeah. You see a picture and instantly you feel something. Yeah. And that's very powerful and I, I really love that. Mm-hmm.